0: The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org.
1: Thank you, Wei. Let's pray. What uh, glorious truths, Father. We have already prayed and sung about Your Son. I pray now that You would fill me with Your Spirit, that You would send the Spirit here among us now, that You would carry me, that You would fill my words, that You would fill our listening that You would cause Christ to be clothed before us, that You would cause us to see Him. And I pray that You would cause within us genuine, authentic worship. I pray that You would do a supernatural work here in each one of us, me included. I pray that You would shape us, make us different, right here, right now, in our seats. Would you do this in order that you would get more glory, in order that you would get more glory by by shaping us so that we would desire you and love you and rejoice in you and praise you, to get glory from our joy in you. But you must create it. You must do it. I am not able. So please come, we ask now. Amen. Sometimes I when I pick a text for a sermon, one of these one-off sermons, I I immediately feel uh, like this is this is what our congregation needs to hear, or maybe it's what I need to hear, and I just figure everybody else is like me and everybody else needs to hear it too. But At the beginning, I I picked this psalm, and I, as I went along, I I really had no idea, really, why I picked it. Um, It's a beautiful psalm, but, but over the last week, I have come to realize that it was the Lord that picked this psalm, for us, for me, for you. I'm convinced of this. I'm convinced of this because of its central message. Its central message being to praise the Lord. Thank you, Captain Obvious. You tell us, <laughs> you tell me. Um, it's dead obvious this psalm is about praising the Lord. It is about praise. The word that is repeated time and time again in this psalm is the Lord. The emphasis of this psalm is to praise the Lord. Sometimes it's the truths that are so dead obvious to us, the ones that we just take for granted, the ones that we assume are true about us. Those are the very truths we must return to, that we must circle back on and ask ourselves is this actually true about me? Is this true about us? So, first, what I, what I want us to, to think about this morning as we look at this, is worship. Are we a worshiping people? This is crucial. This is crucial because of, of the trajectory of, of the entire Psalms. The, the, the book of Psalms itself has a very loose structure. A lot of academics wrestle with who has the right structure, and that's because there really isn't a real thick structure to it. But there is a very particular trajectory to the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms begins with an individual talking largely about his sufferings, usually David. And it's very understandable because he went through a lot of stuff, and so do we. It's very understandable for us to, in our sufferings, be thinking about our sufferings and to cry out to God for help in our sufferings and to be thinking about me and my pain. It's very understandable. But the Psalms move in a trajectory from me and thinking about my sufferings to praise, from suffering to praise, from me to God. And not only from me to God, but from me to others. This psalm is the the first psalm in the last section of the psalms, the psalms of praise, the psalms of spiritual songs. and. It, this trajectory of the book of Psalms is a perfect picture of where God is taking us, where God means to take us in our lives. As Harold prayed, even, even when circumstances have not changed, the, the miracle that God does in us is that even when the suffering remains, even when God is not restored, that we move from this focus on self, an understandable self-absorption to a supernatural God-absorption to an understandable focus on self, to a focus on others to get this God. That's a miracle. <laughs> God does that in any of us. That's a miracle. And that's exactly what the psalmist is singing about and calling us to think about today, is this miracle and how it happens, how God does this miracle. That's what I want us to see today. And I really, I, I want us to do more than seeing... I, I pray that God would do this miracle in us. So, he'll do the heavy lifting today. I'll just preach. (laughs) So, I want to look at this psalm, and the outline that I've used is is, is actually straight from Jesus' words to the woman at the well in John 4, where Jesus told the woman, God is spirit." God is spirit, and and, in my paraphrase, and he is creating a community of worshipers who worship him, do you remember, in spirit and in truth. So that's that's my simple outline today. I want us to look at the nature of worship, what it really is, and then to look at how the spirit enables this in truth. So first, first worship. What, What exactly is worship? What is it? He commands us, the psalmist commands us, we, the people of God, whose basic central job it is to praise the Lord. He calls us to praise Him, to praise His name, verse 1, to give praise to the name of the Lord is equal to being a servant of the Lord. This is central to our very existence. Again, yes, head nod. Thank you, Jed. But it's worth looking at again. To be a servant of the Lord is to praise the name of the Lord, to, to have within us welling up a happiness that does something in the world to enhance the reputation of God. That's why it says that we should praise the name of the Lord. That's what God is up to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know what? I'm just going to keep trusting the Lord. Um, These are my, this is my sermon manuscript (laughs) Uh, that's been sitting in the broken copier for the last (laughs) hour. So, let's just, let's just keep going with
0: this.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What matters is Christ. Let's, let's look at Him. So, what does it mean to praise Him? It means to to have this this happiness welling up within us that enhances his fame in the world. That's what it means to to stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. To to be a servant in this house means to simply praise him. Good. Why? It's very simple. Verse 3, look with me here at the logic of verse 3. It simply means to see that he is good. That he is pleasant, it says. The word pleasant there means, not pleasant in the sense of, you know, how how was your date with the new guy? Oh, it was pleasant. It means pleasant as in pleasing, as in beautiful, as in the thing you feel within yourself when you see the most beautiful thing you've ever seen, that. That's what praise starts with. It starts right there. And then it turns into something that we are just designed to do imagine that when we when we see that thing that is most beautiful what do we do next we well i don't have it with with me we we pull out our phone and we go like this right because we want to take a picture of it why do we want to take a picture of it because we want to post it on instagram to share it with the world That's at the core of the Instagram business model is the human propensity to praise, to share that which seemingly to the poster is beautiful, even if half the time it really isn't. (laughs) That's what we do. It's baked into us. Imagine that. So this business of praise is very simple. It is to notice that God is good, that He is beautiful, that He is pleasant, and then to do what seems best next, to sing to it, to sing it, to share it. It's enjoyment shared. It's enjoyment shared. And, and this, this is the heart of the entire Bible. If, if you look at your… I have cross-references in my Bible, you'll notice that there is a cross-reference for every verse here. That's because the psalmist here… This psalm, almost every word is a quote from another verse in the Bible, almost every single word. He's synthesizing all of the great themes of Scripture, and he's boiling them down, and he's putting his finger on this one thing that the Bible is about, the praise of this God, how good He is, and the praise of His name. This is what it means to be biblical. To be biblical does not mean that you can woodenly, you know, platitudinously share Bible verses. That's not what being biblical means. Being biblical means to to be in touch with the center of this, this word. This word. To be in touch with it, to have it spill out of you like gossip. To be biblical means to be a person who is happy about this God and who shares that happiness. This is biblical. So, if, if, if this is what it means to be biblical, and if we are biblical, and if this is what it means to be in the household of God, and we say that we're in the household of God, if, you, if, if this is what it means at the very heart to be evangelical, to be a Christian, then a question that I heard posed recently, what then are we known for as evangelicals? in the world, in this valley, in your office, in your family? What are you known for? let me take a stab at it. We're known for supporting this president and not the previous one. We're known for being against abortion. We're known for biblical sexual ethics. We're known for really stepping up well when disasters strike. We're known for being about the family and about children. We're known for knowing our Bibles and for studying our Bibles. Maybe we're known for missions. Maybe we're known for being judgmental. Okay. (laughs) And maybe with each one of those, you could give me a, a perfect justification for each one of those. Okay. Fine. But but if this is the center, if this is our reason for existence, why are we not known for Psalm 135? Why is that? I've asked this myself. I, I come to you today burdened under conviction as I've thought about this for myself this morning. Why am I not known for this? Why, even in the church office? Does our banter not center on Psalm 135 or something like it? Why? Why is that? I think it's because we human beings are so prone to love the things of God. but We're so prone to leave out God. <laughs> to love, praise, but forget that we're praising the Lord. Hmm. We, we, we love to do the things of God. We, we, we love the thought of the community of God. We, we, we love the, the feeling we have when we're, when we're praising God. We love the feeling of spiritual experiences. And all of that, it's so easy for us to leave out God. It, this first point is so simple, and yet the, the more I started to think about it, I realized, whoo, that's me. Is it you? I think so. <laughs> I think so. So what do we do? What do we, what do we do with this? Well, as Jesus said, the Father is creating a community of worshipers who worship Him in spirit and in truth. In spirit and in truth. So let's, let's look here. Let's look in the psalm to see where is the spirit and where is the truth that would, that would cause us to return, cause us to return. This leads us to the second point, the Spirit. We need the Spirit to bring us repentance in community. That's the second point. We need the Spirit to bring us repentance in community. I get repentance because as bookends in the book of Acts, repentance is defined for us very clearly. Repentance is never in the Bible just turning from something. It is always defined as turning to God. If there's an area in your life where you've, you've, you've buried your sin, you've, you, you've put it away, but you've not turned towards the Lord in joy, and replacement, in replacement, in the place where that idol used to exist, then you haven't really repented yet, according to the definition of the Bible. So, we need repentance to the Lord, to the Lord, a thoroughgoing repentance. But that always happens in community. That always happens in community. So, so, so first, w- w- repentance. Where do I get this from? I get it from verses 15 through 18. The psalmist is, is warning us here, warning us not to get bogged down in idols because they are worthless. That His essential thought here is it is absurd. Absurd. The, the power differential between God and our idols. Hey Siri, give me life. Hey Siri, raise me from the dead. Hey Siri, bring lightning down. Hey Siri, turn over entire nations to save a people and redeem them from death and sin. Idols are worthless, he's saying. It's absurd. And yet we get bogged down in them. And as we do, they, they dull us. That's, that's the essential thought of verse 18. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. It is an inviolable rule that whatever idols you and I hold in our life, they, we will end up becoming like them. We fashion them, but they end up fashioning us. Now, if you, if you worship work, what will happen to you if you try to find your personal vindication in your career, in your work, what will happen to you is that you will become a very demanding person. Why is that? Because in order to find vindication in your work, you have to strive and struggle to make this quarter's numbers. And then you feel vindicated until next quarter. Work is always demanding more and more and more for you to stay vindicated. It's a terrible demanding taskmaster that makes demanding people. Or if you worship approval, the approval of other people and likes, what will happen to you is that you will become deaf You will only become attuned to the approval, the voices of approval from other people, and you will become deaf to words of life. You won't be able to find where true compassion is found. You'll be deaf to the things that matter. So the psalmist is saying, repent, and we need repentance. We need repentance. And it is another inviolable rule of Scripture that it is the Spirit that always grants repentance. Always. The reason why we leave God out is that we are so prone to put other things in His place. We need a thoroughgoing, Spirit-driven repentance. So the simple call here of the psalmist is first, look and see the absurdity of your idols. Look and see how absurdly, pathetically weak they are compared to the great power of God, which we'll see in a few minutes. Look at it, see it, feel the absurdity, but then ask the Spirit. Ask God to grant you repentance by the Spirit. So will you? Will you join with me in asking God to grant us repentance from our idols, especially the ones that we... Pat ourselves on the back for and we give ourselves permission for those, especially that God would wake us up and make us hear and make us see, make us alive. And ask while you're at it with me that the Spirit would come and shape us in worship. In worship. This, this psalm would have certainly have been used in worship services in the nation of Israel. Certainly would have. There is something more going on here, however, than just reciting praise back to God. As I prayed earlier, when we gather to worship, the deep meaning, the deep purpose here is that God would meet with us here and shape us. We craft the worship service, we plan for it, we write sermons and maybe they get printed out and maybe they don't. Maybe the right musicians show up, maybe they don't. We, we build a building, we, we pay for the lights, we schedule it, we do all these things, but we do it so that God would come here and shape us and shape us deeply in our wills. You think about it, every, every point of the worship service is meant for this. Just Think about it. Bryant gets up and calls us back to worship, calls us to praise at the beginning of the service, just like the psalmist. The songs that we sing are meant to sing the great truths of Scripture to our hearts, to shape us, that we would go out singing them. The sermon is meant by God's blessing to make God Himself clear to us so that we would see Him again and love Him. And even the, the final words, the benediction, is that they're meant to, to, lead, to land on us and leave us, not, not striving for more, but resting. Resting in what? Resting in the goodness of God, that God is good, He is beautiful, that He is pleasant. So I, I ask you, will you commit, will you commit to prayer for these times together? Will you commit not only to just being here at 1030, will you commit to praying in advance for God to meet us here? That we would be a church that would come with a hunger, not to, to just to have spiritual experiences and not to just have a correct sermon, but to be shaped by the living God, to have supernatural experiences here and now in our seats that would leave us changed. That's what the psalmist is up to. He's calling the community of God back to the center, back to this place of simple enjoyment of God, of praise, which we'll see in a moment. is so good for us. So good for us. But lastly, we, we need the Spirit of God to move in our community when we leave these doors, when we leave this room. We need the Spirit of God to meet us. This is... Uh, in, in every church, in every church, there, there is the community. It's the easy part. There's a, there's a community, and you say, we're going to have worship, and we're going to have community groups. We're going to have discipleship groups. And they're going to meet now. We're going to have this meal. That's the easy part. The hard part, the heavy lifting that God does, is the community beneath the community. When, when one person catches and, and hears the psalmist and, and catches something, catches something that we'll see in a moment, and his heart begins to glow within him. Her heart begins to glow, and then it, it catches fire. It catches fire, and then someone else sees that. Someone else sees that glow and wants it. And they connect with each other. They connect with each other, not because of affinity, not because of affability, not because of an app, because there was this glow within the one person that attracted other people, n- not to them, but to the glow, to the warmth that they want too. The community beneath the community—that's what the spirit must create, and that's what we need. That's what every true community, the only true community, is built around. The community that will go into eternity—that that, again, again that we'll see in a moment. It's built around a community of people that are set afire, that their hearts glow about God, not about doing the things of God, not about knowledge of God, God. And only the Spirit can do this. Only the Spirit can do this. So I haven't told you to do anything yet except look for it. Look for it in the kingdom of God or look for it in the people of God. Look for this glow. Look for this joy. Connect with these people. I remember um, a while back there was this odd coupling of people in our church. It was, if I remember right, it was one of the youngest men in our church and one of the oldest men in our church. And I didn't script this. No one did. I found out about it later that they were meeting together to talk about God. Imagine that, to talk about God. And the older man said, you know what, I'm doing most of the learning here. I'm doing most of the learning because I'm, I'm, it's like his joy in the Lord is rubbing off on me. That's, that's spirit-created community beneath the community. It happens in surprising ways. I... I will never forget, if I've shared this before, it's worth sharing again, I will never forget the time when I took my friend paroled, who's from Haiti, to the top of the St. Louis Arch. And I had been there on field trips a thousand times, and old hat to me. And as we're standing up there and the kids are, kids in the, at the, the viewing area at the top are going back and forth, woo-hoo, wow, wow, neat, whoa. And I just watched paroled. And he was silent, silent. And I, to be honest, I was a little bit arrogant there, like, like thinking about him. I'm showing my, my, backwards, my friend from backwards Haiti uh, this awesome thing that we have here in my hometown. You know, beautiful. You can see downtown St. Louis. You can see East St. Louis. It was a joke. But, um, but I'll never forget... Finally, I asked Perold, What do you think, man? And Perold looked at me and said, in a very hushed voice, he called me Jetty. Oh, Jetty, poise God, poise God. Sometimes people don't give credit where credit is due. All I can say is, poise God. And I, I put my hand over my mouth, and I suddenly saw the St. Louis Arch differently, completely differently. He was the mature one in that moment. I was the immature brat. That's what we need. That's real community. People who come alongside us and say, Look, God. Look for these people. Is this you? I resonate resonate with the call of this. Psalm, and yet there's a part of me that finds it very distant. If you're like me, you you feel this. You you, you nod your head to this psalm, and then you then you you scratch under the surface and you you feel this distance from it. And I want that distance to close. So how does the Spirit do that in us? He does it through the truth. Does it through the truth? We need the Spirit to show us the truth of God. That's the third point. A very simple point. We need the Spirit to show us the truth of God. What is the truth? The truth is a servant. A servant that God raised up. A servant that God raised up who who served the Lord in our place in the house of the Lord. Who said that one day... In three days, he would destroy God's house and then raise it up again, who took God's house and became it himself and then destroyed it and then raised it up by his death and by his resurrection. A servant of the Lord who from eternity past in the Trinity saw and felt the goodness of God, the pleasing beauty of God, who saw it. And yet gave it all up to become a man for us. Who gave it all up to become a man? Who gave it all up to become a man, who then died on a cross for us, died on a cross so that we could be vindicated. He was treated like a criminal, a murderer, a pedophile, so that we could be vindicated. So that we need not seek vindication in anything else, in anywhere else, but in Him in what He did for us. Where do you look for vindication? It's already accomplished for you in Christ. So look again, look again at the servant of the Lord, the servant of the Lord, who as He he approached the cross... He came like one of our idols, more and more silent, like a sheep that's led to the shears, like a, leap, a sheep that's led to the slaughter. He became more and more silent and gave himself up and poured out his life so that God could have complete compassion upon us, complete forgiveness. <laughs> Look again at this servant. Look again at the worthlessness, the the utter worthlessness of the idols that that we trust in in comparison to the awesome power of this servant who has gone before us and served God in our place. Christian, you don't need to serve the Lord. It's been done for you. Does that sound wrong to you? Does that sound off? Good, that means I'm preaching the gospel right you don't need to serve the Lord anymore he has been served in your place perfectly all that is left for you is to enjoy him enjoy him isn't that good news take the burden off take the burden off Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you. You will find that my burden is light and easy. You'll find me to be a humble master. Not demanding, humble, compassionate. Look again. Look again at this servant who has gone before you. And given perfect praise to this God, in whom now we have perfect vindication, we can stand right before God. We can stand right and rest in His compassion over us. A compassion that will never end. A compassion that will never end. We have been vindicated at the cross. We have been shown compassion. But one day, one day, verse 21, Zion will come down. Zion will come down and earth and Jerusalem will become one and we will be with him forever. You'll see him face to face and then you will feel that vindication. Faith will become sight. There'll be no more use for faith. Faith will become sight and we will see our vindication and the glory of his compassion upon us. We will feel it like the hottest heat from the sun and all will be glory. All because of him, all because of his sovereign grace to us, all because of his sovereign choice to us, all because, verse 4, the Lord has chosen Jacob, that's the sense there, scoundrel, fool, like us, all because of his sovereign grace. He's chosen us for glory. All because He chose us, verse 4, as His own possession. When God possesses a people, He lavishes them with all that is His, all that is Him. So Our job, our job is to bask in this. Is He not worthy, as the song says. Our, our word for worship is just a shortened version of an old English word that means worth-ship. To notice that someone is worth praise and honor and glory. Christian, because of what Christ has done, our central job, the only needful thing that we need do is to notice that He is worthy. That He is worthy of all of our praise. And to praise To praise Him by the truth, to praise Him by feeding ourselves this gospel of grace. This is the way back. This is the way back to the center. This is the way back to close the distance between what we feel of the psalm and where the psalmist is, to feed ourselves grace. This is what true community is, a people that feed each other grace. The most useful person in any church is one who is in touch with this sovereign grace and can come alongside you and can give you one bit of grace to one bit of your life. The most useful person in any community is a person that looks around and says, how can I glorify God in this people? how can I come along this person and labor for their joy, as Paul put it in 1 Corinthians 1? To labor alongside you for your joy, for you to increase, and your joy to this God would be to the increased glory of God would be to the increased renown of His name. So how can I do that? One bit of gospel grace, one bit of sovereign grace to one bit of your life. That's the most useful person in any community. Is that you? Because now... You are free. You are free from any performance, but to enjoy God and to simply share that enjoyment with someone else. That's it. That's it. We're free. Free. Is he not worthy for all that he has done, all that he is doing today? The psalmist, in verse 5, repeats the words of Jethro, Jethro, when he heard basically the gospel at that point from Moses, how God had redeemed his people out of Egypt. And those first three words of verse 5 are the words of Jethro, for I know, I know that the Lord is great. Do you know that? I don't mean do you know it, do you know it? You know it? Is He not worthy? That's where praise begins. That's where praise starts. Do you know it? Because to know it is the greatest thing. It's what we're called to. It's our central purpose, but it is, it is the best place for us to be, for us to be. Um, C.S. Lewis noticed this, and I wanted to read something by him from his, his book on the Psalms. Um, he summarizes many of the things that we've talked about here, but I'll, I'll emphasize one here. He says, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I, I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise, unless even shyness or the fear of Boring others is deliberately brought in to check it, but the world rings with praise, he says. Lovers praising their, their boyfriends or girlfriends, readers, their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite team, praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountain ranges, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians or scholars. Here he says something that I find um, very helpful. He says, "I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious people, the most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, the misfits and the malcontents praised the least." What, he, what he's getting at is to be a person who can see the goodness of God. And to be a person who lives in, in an increasing praise, just happiness of this God. To, to paraphrase Lewis, this is the sanest place to be. This is the person who is the most sane, even if circumstances have never changed. This is the person who has found something that not, nothing in the world can touch. This is, the, this is the sane place. This is good for us to be in this place. But then Lewis goes on, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join in them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. My whole more general difficulty about the praise of God depending, depended on my absurdly denying to us as regards the supremely valuable, what we delight to do, what indeed we can't help doing about everything else we value. And then here's the big point. I think we ought to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Do you track with Lewis there? There is a sense in which you and I will enjoy nothing in this world, nothing, until we enjoy, until we belong to God and belong to Him in enjoyment, in this joy. But when we belong to Him, when we are possessed by Him and we experience this joy, then the the enjoyment of the whole world opens up to us. In other words, it is the very best thing for us To live in this praise of God. It is the greatest thing for the world because the world needs Him. The world needs to see Him. But it is the greatest thing for us. We were made for pleasure, and He is that pleasure. He is good. He is the beauty that all other beauty is just an emanation from, like light from the sun. He is the sun. All the world needs to see it, and we need to see it. It is the greatest thing for us to see it. Do you see it? Do you see it? I pray that the Spirit would come, come in our community, come in our, in our uh, intentions to repent of our idols regardless that He would come, that He would come and create in us a, a worshiping heart. that He would create us to be a people that worships Him in simple enjoyment, simple enjoyment. That's where our true pleasure is found in this life, nowhere else. Can you see it? Can you see it? I pray that the Lord gives it to us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I… How great is Your salvation? How great is Your salvation to choose undeserving sinners for all of this, for life in You, for eternal life but for life with you. What a good God you are. Our words can never express it, and yet it is still true, and yet we will still try because that's how you've made us. You've designed us to praise. So I pray, would you come in the the life of this church, would you come by your Spirit, give us new eyes, give us eyes to see you more clearly, that in our joy and our great joy of you, you would be praised. The renown of your name would grow. Would you do this? Because you are so good. Would you do this and would you cause in us just a, a sweetness? I ask this because I know this is who you are. You are a generous God. So I pray that you would cause in us to well up, to stay sweet, Sweet enjoyment, a sweet, sweet rest in you. In you. Praise you. Praise the Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's all stand
0: together. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is... Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.